Let's pray. Lord, we would say, indeed, you are a rock, a foundation upon which to build life. And we pray that you would now instruct us from your word. We pray that your word would, um, would be like an anchor for us and help us to root ourselves in it, to trust it, to give ourselves over to it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be our teacher today and point us to Jesus, point us to the Father. We pray that you'd have your way with us and that your word would be applied into our lives. We don't want to just be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. And so we pray that you would make this time now pleasing to you and that we as your people aim to set our attention on your word, to be taught and instructed by you, and then to to partner with you in the application of that word into our lives. So help us. We recognize that we are weak and you are strong and we need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. That's where we'll be today. Isaiah chapter 13. And if you are just joining us for the first time, maybe, or you haven't been away, you haven't been here for a while, we are doing a study of the book of Isaiah. And we have, in the first 12 chapters, I think we'd probably all agree, for those of us who have been here for the whole series, would agree that the first 12 chapters, God is primarily addressing his people, the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel, and he's telling them things that they've been doing that aren't, aren't, he's not happy about, right? Would you agree with that? Uh, there's been a number of points where he said, look, you're failing to practice, this is kind of the thematic statement, you're failing to practice justice and righteousness. Those are things God requires of his people, to be just and to be righteous. And he says, you can't have one without the other. You can't just be a person who cares about the oppressed and who cares about the least of these. That would be kind of what justice is aimed at, helping those who are experiencing the brokenness of a fallen world and helping them uh, into wholeness and out of brokenness. That's, that's kind of a biblical understanding of justice. You can't just be about justice and not care about righteousness. You can't just... You can't just dismiss my moral standards. But you also can't just love my moral standards and kind of say, well, I'm not doing all these things, therefore I'm a righteous person and not care about justice. That the two always go hand in hand. And so God has been saying to his people throughout these first 12 chapters with some encouraging words mixed in there as well, but has been saying to them generally, this is why it is that I am having to exercise my hand of judgment Uh, towards you, and I want you to walk out of that and into better things. I'm God, I created you, I know how life works best, and I want you to walk in my standards and in my ways. I love the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's a great little kid's Bible, and we read it to our daughters and our son every night, and they link a lot of the major biblical stories uh, to Jesus and how they point to him. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, they just kind of drive everything through, here's how this Scripture points to Jesus because the Bible is one big story with Jesus at the center, and so uh, it's a great kids' Bible. If you haven't picked it up, I'd encourage you to, to get it. If you got kids, in fact, if you don't have kids, it's great for me. Honestly, I read it and I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. And uh, one of the things that um, oh, I've just completely lost my train of thought, just completely. All right, we're gonna move on from whatever the Jesus Storybook Bible illusion was. So God is declaring, I'm not kidding, I really have just completely lost it, and it's not anywhere in the notes, so. You know what, we like to mess up from time to time, just so you know we're not perfect around here. No one was in danger of thinking that, Trent, just. Anyway, all right, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, God has a lot to say about his people, about he wants them to execute justice and righteousness, and he wants them to, oh, I remembered it now. I remembered it now. 
in the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of the things, one of the things that they do a great job of pointing to is that they say um, God has standards and rules, moral things that he says you should obey these in his word. But I love the way that, that it puts it. And for my kids, I love when they read this because it says, but God's word is not primarily a list of rules. It has those rules because God loves you and knows what, the best way to live. And he's trying to show you what that looks like. So all those laws, all those rules, all those moral standards that God gives us, they're for our good, they're for our benefit. And honestly, if you grew up in church, like a lot of us did, not all of us, a lot of us didn't grow up in church, but for those of us who did, sometimes you get taught this behavioristic approach to faith. You get taught this sort of, I mean, really, honestly, as a parent now, I can totally get it, where sometimes we just want our kids to, to just toe the line and not embarrass us in public, right? We're just like, please stop yelling and, you know, stop being a sinner in front of people, please, if you could. Right? That's, sometimes we get into that mode of not worrying about our kids' hearts, just worrying about their behavior. And when we do that, unfortunately, what it communicates to when we kind of grow up in that, after a time, we, just, we start to think of God's moral authority as just something that is hemming us in from doing the things that really bring fullness to life. Like if only God's word didn't prohibit me from doing this, then I'd really be having some fun. You know, and, and honestly, we, we have that perspective and it's just the complete opposite of what the Bible is actually teaching. The Bible is actually teaching the complete opposite. If you want the most joy-filled, if you want the most uh, life-giving life, then obey God's moral authority. Obey God's law. Love God's law. David writes about it in the Psalms when he talks about, like in Psalm 119, I, I love your word. Your law is written on my heart. I meditate on it day and night because what he recognizes that God's word gives life to those who adhere to it. It just gives life. So if I, let me just apologize on behalf of the church. If you've been raised in an environment where someone taught you that your behaviors, towing some line, was more important than having your heart transformed to love God's word. And, and if you were never told that actually obeying that word is going to produce a kind of life that you could never imagine. We believe that as a church. We believe that when you obey God's word, when you love God's word, it's not actually hemming you in and keeping you from fun. It is actually introducing you to the best kind of life you could ever live. Somebody say amen to that. Awesome, so that I'm not the only one that people think thinks that. All right? So I'm glad I remembered that. So chapter 13 through 20, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna cover eight chapters today. Eight chapters, all right? Now, I'm not gonna be able to read them all. Now, you know, if you've been a part of this church for a while, that we're always trying to drive you towards life groups. We want you to be in a life group because we believe that what is most important is like, look, as much as I love the preached word, and I'm the one doing that a lot, I recognize that it's, the preached word has power to transform, but it really, it does not have the same kind of, I, I would just tell you, the, the grand transformation that happens in our life. Like if you really want to be transformed in your life into a better follower of Jesus, that happens when you live life closely connected to other people which is why we do sermon-based life groups. So we, you're gonna get together this week, we hope, in your life group, and you're gonna discuss what you heard here and ask, how do I apply it to my life? How do I live that out more faithfully? The reason we do sermon-based life groups is because we believe that really you can only digest about one sermon per week. It gets really hard to say, I'm gonna also do a book study, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But sometimes we just fill our heads with a lot of knowledge. We listen to a lot of sermons, we do a lot of book studies, and if we're honest, how often are we actually applying those things? To our life. We move on before we can ever apply them. So one of the things we want to do is study the word together here on Sunday and then get together in life groups during the week and digest what it is that we have heard, what we've received from God's word. Study it together and then say, okay, now how do we live this out? How do we live this out together? How do we live it out as individuals? 
So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Before you go to life group this week, I want you to read all of chapters 13 through 20 of Isaiah, because I'm not going to be able to read them all to you, not all eight of these chapters. So you need the full, like you need to read every word of these chapters. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to point you to specific spots in, these, in this section, in these eight chapters, that are going to carry the major theme of these chapters. They are one section in the book, and they carry the same message. They carry the same message, and so we're going to hone in on the message of these eight chapters today by looking at different kind of snippets as we move through these chapters. So here's, here's what uh, is important to remember now. As we get to chapters 13 through 20, God is turning his attention away from Israel and Judah, and he's turning it now to the nations that surround them. In fact, he's going to address seven specific nations. He's going to address, <clears throat> I'm not going to name them all, but he's going to address nations like Babylon, Philistia, Moab, uh, Syria. He's going to address all these nations. And essentially, when you go around, what you recognize is that all the nations that he's addressing in chapters 13 through 20 are the nations that directly surround the nation of Israel and Judah. And so he is essentially saying, this is, this is what I've said to you, my people. Now, this is what I'm going to say to your neighbors who are oppressing you and who are not living according to my standard. And it's going to be a hard word, okay? He's going to say some things that are difficult to hear. But the, maybe the most important thing for understanding, like, okay, what am I supposed to get from these chapters? Here's probably the most important thing to understand when you're trying to interpret these chapters, is that these were written about all these nations and what God was going to do to judge them, but those nations would have never read these words. Who would have read them? The people of Judah. The people of Israel would have read, would have read them. So in other words, God is speaking to his people about these other people so that they might have a certain attitude and thought planted in their heart, all right? Now here's the big, so the big idea, like the big proposition of the whole, of these whole eight chapters is this, it's really simple. God isn't just king of Israel. He's not just king of Judah. He's king of every nation. God is not just sovereignly over one nation. He's sovereignly over every nation, right? Now, He's going to give us two applications of that in these chapters. There's essentially two things he's going to say. Because that's true, there are two things that, you should, that should be the result of that in your life. And the first is this. Don't live in fear. If God is the God who's over every nation and over all that occurs on the earth, then you don't need to live in fear. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is you need to go to the nations with my message of mercy. So don't live in fear and go to the nations with my message of mercy. If you picked up your sermon notes, you'll notice those are the two major headings in those notes today. So let's discuss the first one, which is this. Don't live in fear. And I want to give you three things that we'll see in these chapters. Three things that God is saying about himself to his people, about what he's going to do with all these nations around them that is meant to cause them to not have to live in fear. It's meant to cause them to not live in fear. But here's what I want to address first before we even look at that. I want to say I was reflecting on this and, and probably due in part to the fact that I was looking at these chapters this week. And it just, it just brought me back to something that I've been thinking for a while now, and it's this. I think it's, I think it's true in our church, and I think it's true in a lot of Christians that I encounter that don't go to this church. I think in general we are, I notice more and more recently that we are relating to the world and the culture around us through the lens of fear that we are operating out of fear more than out of trust in God. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not. That's my own observation, so you're free to disagree with that. But that's what I observe. I'll give you an example of that. There's a guy that I, I 
um, and that I see regularly, he provides one of those regular services in life that we all need, right? Like, you know, get your oil changed, get your hair cut, get your mani-pedi. No, I don't get mani-pedis, sorry. <clears throat> so one of those services, right? And I was talking with this guy this week, and this is gonna sound silly, but uh, I, I don't tell it to make light of this at all. <clears throat> I've noticed that every time I'm with this guy, the conversation, no matter how I might try and steer it, no matter what I might make the topic of conversation, it could be the weather, it could be anything, that he will inevitably turn, that, turn the conversation to a place of his anxiety about people who are not like him, who live around him, and his fear about what might happen one day. And you know, the conversation kind of always tends to steer there. And I, I've only recently begun to notice this as we're in conversation. And it really stood out this last week as I was with this guy. Now he goes to church, uh, you know, I don't know him super well, but he certainly would say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And in our conversation, this is how, this is what struck me, is that kind of out of left field, he said, he said, you know, I've got this neighbor and we got to talking and my neighbor said to me, you know, like, do you have a plan for if riots break out in our neighborhood? And I thought to myself, we live in central Pennsylvania, like when is a riot gonna break out? In our, like, he doesn't live that far from me. I'm like, man, I have never once thought about a riot breaking out in my neighborhood. Like, it's not. He said, oh, and, and no, I'm not kidding. He had, he's thought about this. He said, oh, yeah, I've got a plan. I'm going to cut. I've identified two trees on our block that I can cut down. I will drag them with my all-terrain vehicle to the edges of, to either end of our block, and I will light them on fire. <laughs> because I have yet to see the person who's willing to walk through fire to harm me or something. I, don't, I, I just... You know, I know that I talk a lot, and so I usually have something to say. I had nothing to say. I didn't know. I was, but friends, I just thought to myself, like, it's like it, a light bulb went on, and I just thought, okay, like, how do I love this guy? Because he's overwhelmed with fear. Now, he's a big macho kind of a guy, so he would never acknowledge that that's based out of fear, what he was just telling me. He would just, he'd probably say it's based out of maybe strategy or strength, or I, I don't know. I mean, um, but I just, I was overwhelmed by the sense of like, he's afraid. And he's engaging the whole world like he's afraid. He's got, he's got battle plans drawn up for what happens when the riders, which I'm gonna go ahead and guess is never going to happen. When they come marching down the street, he's cutting down the trees. And I'm just like, where does that come from? And you know, I mean, I, again, it, it's kind of a funny image, right? It's a funny image to think about you know, cutting down trees on the street and dragging them to the end, that whole thing, right? But I don't tell it to, to be silly or to be funny. I tell it because I, that, that was like an encapsulation to me of the way a lot of my conversations with Christians are these days, that we're afraid. And perhaps you're not, perhaps you don't feel you are, but I, I, I just notice, I see, I see what happens you need to understand this. There's no good result from engaging the world from a place of fear. There's no good result. There's nothing positive that comes from engaging the world as an afraid person. It causes us to trust in the wrong people and the wrong things to protect us. That's one result of fear. It does. I see it. I see it in us. We are turning to the wrong saviors, friends, within the church. We are turning. We think our salvation lies somewhere that it does not. We're grasping at power in our current cultural atmosphere, trying to maintain it, trying to maintain influence. Let me just tell you, that's not the way to get influence, by the way, is to continue grasping at it desperately. So 
I think, and you need to understand, fear leads to anger always. Like you might, you might recognize that. That's important to recognize. Like the person who's afraid long enough will always turn angry. There is no end of fear that leads, fear never leads to peace, never leads to joy. It always leads to anger. Usually anger at those who are not like you. That's just a couple of results of fear. I mean, it just, it, I, I see it. And so I think as I was reading these chapters in Isaiah this week, I thought to myself, like, this is, this is important, obviously. I mean, it's the word of God. It's always important. But I just couldn't help but think it resonates a little bit. I think also fear leads us to believe that safety is more important than gospel effectiveness in our lives. I just, I want you to know, friends, family, church family, God God's major agenda for your life is not to keep you safe. It's really not. His major agenda for your life is that you would be effective for the sake of the gospel. That's his major agenda. And where your safety produces gospel effectiveness, he'll keep you safe. But where perhaps your harm would lead to greater gospel effectiveness, then he'll allow your harm. It's the story of the disciples, the apostles. It's the story of our brothers and sisters all around the globe every day. God's aim is not to keep you safe. And I'm sorry if somebody sold you that lie, but it's not true. And when we operate out of fear, we're prone to to just pursue safety, just keep ourselves safe. And it's so counter to the purposes of God. And you lead a boring life when you do that. You lead lead an ineffectual life less than joy-filled, safe life. And I highly doubt that one day when you and I stand before the king that we're gonna go, I stayed as safe as I possibly could. Two thumbs up, Lord. You know, I don't think we're gonna get a lot of well done, well done. So let's look, here in these chapters, God gives us three things. I think there's more, but the three I identified I wanna share with you today, gives us three things that are meant to tell us, don't, don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. So the first one is this, and it's really just the overarching message of the entire eight chapters. He is the only God. He's the only God. Now you might think, okay, no duh, get it. But let's just think this through with me. Trace it out and trace out the implications for a minute because just think about it. What essentially he's saying to his people is, I know that, that all the nations around you, this would have been true in the ancient Near East, all the nations that surrounded Israel, that surrounded Judah, would have believed that there were many gods. And they would have picked one of those gods to be their primary god, right? So for Babylon, it's the god Marduk, right? And so they would have said, Marduk is the strongest god, therefore he's our primary god. Now, all the other nations worship gods, and we believe they, they exist and that they're real. So when we go to battle, like when Babylon goes to battle against Assyria, they believe that whoever wins is whoever has the what? Strongest god. Right? They, don't, they don't think it means we beat Assyria. Assyria doesn't have a god. It just means that our god is stronger. So the goal, of course, is to align yourself with the strongest god. And that was true, that was, the, that was like the normal mode of thinking in the ancient Near East. And here's Israel and Judah uh, the, who worship the one true God, and God says something very different to them. He says, not only, not only am I the strongest God, I'm not just the strongest God among all the gods, I am the only God. Like Marduk's not a real thing, right? The God of Assyria, not a real thing. 
The God of Moab, not a real thing. The God of Philistia, not a real thing. I am the only God. Now that's unique. They're unique among all the nations around them. But here's what that means for God's people. As now God says that to them in these chapters where he says, look, I'm, I'm not just your God, I'm the only God. As he says that, then Israel and Judah have to come face to face with a very stark reality. If they lose a war to another nation, it's not because that nation's God was stronger than their God. It's because the only God determined that that's what should happen. Which means that when they win, that's what their God determined. When they lose, that's what their God determined. And he determined it for purposes which they may not understand, but if he's the only God, then who else could have been determining it? That's the message of these eight chapters. I am the only God. Which means that like, I'm determining everything that occurs under the sun. I am the one. You don't have to worry that Marduk is in charge for a little while. I'm in charge. That's what God is saying to them. So now, I don't know many Christians who, when I talk to them, that would deny God's sovereignty, that would deny that God is in charge of the universe, right? But I also don't know many that live like it's actually true. I know a lot that say it's true. I know very few that live like it's actually true. Now, that's an important distinction, yes? To believe that God is in charge. And, you know, just as a little aside here, some of us, if you've been in church a while, you may have heard the terms Calvinist and Arminian, right? If you've never heard those terms, don't worry about them, okay? But if you heard those terms, like a Calvinist, right? Some people, you might hear me saying, well, God's in charge, he's sovereign. And you might think, well, that's just, that's one theological perspective. But you need to understand that the Calvinist believes that God determines that everything, that everything that happens under the sun, God determines it. But an Arminian believes that God takes everything that happens under the sun and can turn it to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish through it. There is no biblical theology, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, that does not involve a belief, a rootedness in the sovereignty of God. We just get at it in, from different angles. You follow me? So what Calvinist or Arminian, it doesn't matter. You believe that there's only one God and that he's sovereign over all that occurs. Now that should be, that should be cause to root out. Do you see how that roots out fear when you believe that? That there's no other force or entity that is in charge of other things somehow and maybe they're gonna be in charge for a little while, but that there's only one God. Now the second thing that he says that is meant to root out fear and now we spent too long without getting our eyes in the text, so let's get our eyes in the text now. The second thing is this. All power that opposes God is temporary power. All power that opposes God is temporary power. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. Now, again, you're going to go back and you're going to read all this this week, I hope, 13 to 20. And you're going to see that God is going to say some things that are very hard to hear to the nations. They are fear-inducing types of judgments. So just listen to what he's saying about these other powers that have put themselves up in opposition to him. Verse 6 of chapter 13. Wail. He's talking about Babylon now. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. 
I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. That'll make you quake in your boots a little bit, won't it? Now flip over a couple pages. Look at chapter 16. Now if that was written to Babylon, now we hear in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 about Moab, Israel's neighbor. It says, this is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude and those who remain will be very few and feeble. So in other words, Moab has been strong. They're not gonna be strong much longer. In fact, God put a timeline on it here, three years. And then in chapter 19, verse one, just one verse, this is to Egypt. He says, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So these are strong words of judgment against the nations that have set themselves up in opposition to God. And like I said, they are knee-shaking, fear-inducing kinds of words. God is executing justice against the nations who have opposed him. Now, if you weren't here last week, I'm gonna encourage you to go back and listen to it because I don't have time to unpack again what we talked about last week, which is that a lot of us have trouble imagining this aspect of God's nature, that he would be angry towards sin, that he would be wrathful towards those who are in opposition to him. And quite honestly, we struggle to acknowledge that. That becomes something that we have a little bit of a hard time with. And I tried to last week say, here are some of the things you need to recognize about the fact that God gives us this picture of himself and what it means that God says, I'm angry or I am filled with wrath towards sin. So rather than address it all again, I'll just encourage you to go back and think and, and look at that. If you find yourself in that place where you're like, I don't, I don't like the idea of God as angry. And I, I wanna say now specifically to those of you who are younger, right? So my students and those of you who are in, that, in our younger group here, I want you to think about this because I've noticed that perhaps more than any other group, you are really prone to not want to see this aspect of who God is, that you're prone to dismiss it in favor of and, and honestly, you've had, you've had the, lo- the loudest voices in the Christian world, uh, or, well, in the Christian world, um, that tend to get your generation's attention, will not talk about the wrath of God. They won't talk about the wrath of God, but I want you to understand that the love of God means nothing if it's not protecting us from the wrath of God. Deeply important that you let God be God. And let's even a silly word to use, Right? He's gonna be who he is whether you like it or not. But it's so important. It's so important that you have a full-orbed view of all that the scriptures paint about who God is and not, look, I get it. I get that that your peers, that you feel like it will not be palatable to them to hear about a God who's angry. I get that. And let me apologize if you grew up in an environment where that's the only picture of God that they painted because that's not true either. But again and again, when I'm in conversations with with you guys, I would just say, you need to recapture a fully biblical view of who God is. And that involves a God who's wrathful towards sin. It does. It involves a God who is deeply loving, but deeply wrathful towards sin. And he is. Anger is one of his attributes. Anger is one of his attributes. And we don't determine that. We come to him as, as he is or not at all. And we don't get to determine our view of that. And I find again and again 
that the teachers who have the loudest place among our 20-somethings and our teenagers tend to resist or speak against the idea that God would ever be wrathful. And you can draw a crowd that way, but I shake in my boots when I think about the consequences of that. It makes me fearful for the church. One day you're gonna lead the church. One day, 22-year-old, you will lead the church. You will be the pastor. You will be the one standing right here. You will be the elder. You will be the one teaching the class. And the question is, will we hand you a deeply robust biblical vision of Christianity, one that's big enough to say, God is beyond me and he's magnificent. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope you'll take it and receive it. Search the scriptures. Don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. See if what I'm saying is true. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, using the same idea to, bring, to say, you don't need to be afraid. Don't live in fear. He says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, what he's saying is, even if, even if God allows this person who's in opposition to him and to you to, to bring you all the way to death, even if he allows that to happen, Ultimately, that power is limited. The power of those who oppose God has boundaries. It, will ne- it won't last forever, and it's not, they don't have power to do the ultimate thing, which would be to destroy the soul. They can kill the body. That's as much as they can do. And what God is saying, and what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10, 28, is to his people, don't live in fear. Don't live in fear, because all power that opposes me is temporary power. The last one, an important one to kind of get at a heart level is this, and I love it, is we will make it home. We will make it home. Not maybe. You're gonna get home one day. Listen to what chapter 14, verse one says. Chapter 14, verse one, just one verse here. You might have to flip back a few pages from where we were. It says, now he takes a little hiatus here to talk to, to, talk to Judah, to talk to his people again. He says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So what he's just said there is that, you know, one day, a couple hundred years after Isaiah is writing, uh, Judah is gonna be taken into exile in Babylon. They're gonna go into exile. But he says, but I will bring you home from that. I will bring you home from that exile. You will make it home is what Isaiah is saying, which is again, he's saying you don't have to be afraid. It's going to be bad for a while, but ultimately you will make it home. And now lest we just think, okay, well that's true because Israel was brought out of exile in Babylon and brought home to Jerusalem. So they were able to live in their home country. But how does that apply to us? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verses two and three. Same idea. Now to us as who are believers in Jesus in the new covenant now. It says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may what? You may be also. Isn't that a good promise? You will make it home. This always makes me think about, you guys remember taking final exams? Yes, some of you more recently than others, right? 
Yeah, so I remember, I remember college. I remember taking those final exams and just nose to the grindstone for like two weeks, right? Like you, you got the final round of tests and then it feels like they, they, then they got the cumulative final after that and you are just busting it to get ready and to study. There's no time for anything else and you are just in it, you know, and you're stressed and the whole deal. And then do you remember the feeling of filling the last bubble on the last test in the Scantron or putting the period on the last sentence of that essay in the last final exam and be like, I'm done, I'm out. Oh, it's a good feeling, right? You remember it? If you can't remember it, please think back. All right, some of you are like, it's been 50 years, Trent. It's okay, I'll give you a test later and you can have that feeling all over again. It's the best feeling when you finish that because all of a sudden, because what, it's summer. It's summer, it's over, this is the best. I'm done, I don't have to do this test anymore. I'm done with the studies. And what do you do? You jump in the car, you've got to load it up and you go, I, I live three hours away from where I went to college and I would head down Highway 6 and about two miles down Highway 6, I would think, I'm going home where chalk chip cookies are gonna be in the oven. <laughs> where mom and dad don't care, if, well, they care if I failed the final, but they love me anyway place of warmth and comfort and ESPN, <laughs> Dallas Cowboy game. It's going to be awesome. You just look. And, and that's just, you know, that's just 3124 Chestnut, Carrollton, Texas, right? Don't look at my parents on Google Earth. That's, that would be an invasion of privacy, all right? That's just 3124 Chestnut, man. I love that place. That place is home. It feels like home, everything about it. Just home. We have a better home. We got a better home than 3124. I don't know what the address is. One Jesus Lane. I don't know, you know. (laughs) But he's making a home for us. He's preparing a place. He promised. He promised. He promised. Does Jesus break his promises? Never. Never. He's going to come back. He's going to get us. We will make it home. And if the worst thing that happens is someone says, I'm going to shoot you dead, they just ushered us right into our home. That's all they did. They said, here you go. You get to go home earlier than you thought, but not earlier than God thought. Man, we will make it home. Now, does that eliminate some fear? Yeah, it should. It should. This is what God is saying to his people, Israel, Judah, and now to us. Don't live in fear. Don't live in fear, right? Now, let's, the second major thing going on in these chapters, and we just got a few minutes, so we're gonna cover it here, is not only is he saying don't live in fear, he's saying go to the nations with my message of mercy. Now, that, might, that should cause you to feel like, wait, what? Because we just read all these really strong words of judgment against all these nations that surrounded and were in opposition to the people of God and to God himself. And so how on earth, where does mercy play into this? But that's what's so amazing about God. He can in one breath say, he can in one breath say, my righteousness calls me to to judge you and to bring justice for the oppression that you've caused And in the very next breath, again, scattered throughout these chapters, God is going to say that ultimately my purposes are for my mercy to triumph. And let me show you what I'm gonna do. From among these nations that I am declaring that I'm going to judge, I'm going to bring and redeem a people for myself, for my glory, from among these nations. 
Not every single person in those nations, but some will come to me because I intend to have a people that is for my glory from among all the nations of the earth, from every people group, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. They will come to me. So listen to what he says. I'm just gonna, if you got the sermon notes, you'll notice I listed about three different sections in these chapters where he's talking about this. He's saying to Moab, Moab, I'm gonna bring some of you home. You're gonna come home, right? He's gonna say, to even Babylon, he's gonna say to Syria, he's gonna say to all these nations what he's gonna do. It's astounding, it's absolutely mind-blowing that in these same chapters, these are some of the strongest words of judgment in the entire Bible. When you read them this week, you will squirm because you will think, oh my goodness, that's violent. Oh my goodness, that's a strong word of judgment. And then he's gonna say this, just look at chapter 19. Verses 18 through 25. So it's a good little section here. And just listen to what he says. Now, he's gonna talk to Egypt, he's gonna talk to Assyria, and he's gonna talk to Israel. And this is what he's gonna say. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Like they'll actually follow through on what they declare, right? And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Do you remember how bad the Assyrians are? I don't know if you were here earlier, we spent some time talking about this nation. The Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you see how radical that is? He's just declared at the end of all this judgment that my mercy will reign and I will purchase a people for myself from among Egypt and Assyria, and he said it earlier about Moab, he's gonna say it about Syria, all these nations that he's judging, he's also demonstrating his mercy to purchase a people for himself from among them. That's absolutely amazing. God, this is what he's essentially saying, God turns enemies into children. He turns his enemies into his children. He says the same thing in Romans chapter five when Paul is writing. Romans chapter five, verse 10 says this. For if while we were enemies, talking about you and me, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So what he's saying is you, you weren't just like indifferent, you were God's enemy is what Paul is saying in Romans five. Now listen to what John says in 1 John chapter three, verse one. Same idea, he doesn't use the word enemies, but listen to what he says happens now when we come to Jesus. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what, church? Children of God, and so we are. 
In other words, if Romans 5 is true and 1 John 3 is true, then what he's saying is you were enemies, but now you become the children of God. The same thing is happening for the people of Egypt. The same thing is happening for the people of Assyria. These great enemies of God have become his children. Could there be better news? If God is set on accomplishing this then, if he's set on accomplishing this, if this is the purposes of God in the world to get people from every nation to come to him through Jesus, then it would stand to reason that he intends for his people to be the ones through whom he does it. Yes? That's the last point for the day. God intends for you and I, without exception, there is no one who would take on the label Christian to whom God does not say, you must be a part of redeeming a people for me from among every nation. It's your job, 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 and it's my job. This is what God is doing. God does not say, what are you doing? I'll come join you. God says, this is what I'm doing, join me. And this is God's major agenda throughout all of human history. To say, the Egyptians, they were my enemies, I'm going to make them my children. The Assyrians have been my enemies, I'm going to make them my children. Don't live in fear of people who don't worship Jesus. Go to them and declare God's mercy can be yours if you will come to him in Jesus Christ. The debt has been paid. The sacrifice has been made. The blood has been shed for you. And God's called you to be a part of that. What an adventure. God has called you to do it. I often talk about four ways that you can be a part of God's work to the ends of the earth. You can be a goer. That's someone who goes to another people group and says, I want to share the gospel across cultural boundaries. A goer. You can be a sender, someone who supports with prayer and money and time and energy. How do I help the goer go? That's what a sender does. You can be a multiplier. That's someone who raises up the next generation of goers. And, and equips the senders to be great senders. The multiplier teaches and informs and instructs and says, okay, this is what it looks like to be a part of this and to go and to do it. The multiplier. And lastly, this is a great one, you can be a welcomer. The nations are at our doorstep. Did you know it? I don't know if you've noticed when you look around the West Shore recently, but one of the greatest things I've ever seen happening is happening. We are getting less white and less Western. Yes! It's so good. God is bringing the nations to us. Maybe because we didn't go to them. He's saying, all right, if you're not going to go, I'll just bring them. What are you going to do now? Don't set logs at the end of your street and set them on fire. (laughs) Go make a friend. You can be a part of God's work right here. Welcoming refugees, serving immigrants, teaching English as a second language and engaging in all of it for the sake of the gospel. The nations are at our doorstep. And I want to say, particularly on the goer side, on the goer side, so we say goer, sender, multiplier, welcomer, right? They're all valid expressions of participating in God's work of redeeming a people for himself from every people group in every nation. But I want to say to you, friends, I was thinking specifically this week on the goer side that there is a specific role, I think, for two groups of people in our midst here. For our students, God is calling some of you. You are in a unique stage of life where you can be a goer in a way that perhaps is just more accessible to you. You need to be considering how God is calling you to go. And the other end of the spectrum, our retired folks. 
when you retire, could you just please treat that as like it's halftime? It's not the fourth quarter, okay? I don't think retirement is in God's vocabulary. You might stop getting paid to do what it is that you did to make a living. That's great, that's fine. You can retire in that way, but you never retire from gospel work, never. The name of Jesus should be on your last breath and then you're gonna be welcomed in his presence and you go, welcome, you're retired now. What can God use you to do in those seasons of life? Now, we're all responsible. Somebody say, say we're all responsible. All of us. Doesn't matter if you got little kids and they're running around and they require a lot of time and attention, you're responsible. God has called you to make disciples. And we throw a couple stats up here for you. We'll end with these. I want you to see these. So this is from joshuaproject.net, great resource for you, joshuaproject.net. It talks about the, the commission to go to the nations and they keep, a running, they keep running statistics on what's going on with that. Now, when, they, when you see this, here's what I want you to understand. There are 16,842 people groups. That means distinct groups of people that share a language and a culture together, essentially. Uh, and there are 16,842 of those people groups. When the Bible talks about people from every nation, it literally means every people group will come to worship him. 16,842. There are just under 7,000 of those that are unreached people groups, which means that's about 41%, which means that we are nowhere near having accomplished the work that God has given us to do. We're not even close. We just crossed the halfway point. Do you see it? Those 6,989 people groups, or if you like it in just raw numbers of people, of the 7.47 billion people, 3.15 billion live among unreached people groups. They live in those just shy of 7,000 people groups, which is about 42% of the population, which means that, which means that those people, unless someone crosses a cultural boundary and enters into their people group to share the gospel, they will not hear the gospel because there is not a gospel presence in their people group, right? You and I live within a people group here in, on the West Shore where there is gospel presence in our people group. So we don't need someone to come from the outside in to tell it to us. We, we are hearing it and we have an opportunity to respond to it. But there are almost 7,000 people groups that unless someone goes and crosses that boundary and enters among those people and lives among them and loves them and is present with them, unless that happens, the gospel will not go to that place. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 10 when he says, how will they hear unless someone goes? Right, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 10. So, here's what I wanna encourage you with, church. The two things that these chapters are all about, right, is that God is the God of all nations, that he's in charge. And we don't have to be afraid when you get together with your life group this week, I want you to be honest and vulnerable with one another and be willing to admit what is making you fearful? What is causing you to be fearful? It's an important conversation to have. The other side of that is to have that conversation about what is it that I have been called to do? Where am I participating? And perhaps you haven't up to this point. That's okay. Don't hang your head and don't feel like I'm, I hope you don't feel like I'm berating you. Just start. It's that easy. Just start getting involved. What can I do to help the gospel be made known to the nations? There's so many avenues. We'd love to help you. Give us a call at the church. We can give you, we can give you 10 avenues tomorrow uh, where we can help connect you to God, God's gospel work as a goer, a sender, a multiplier, or a welcomer. Any one of those. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it's powerful. 
We pray that we live in accordance with it. We want to respond to you now. And it, it just resonates within us when we've heard your word. That the way we want to respond is by singing your praises. That's just the right response to the truth revealed. And so we pray, Lord, that you would hear our praises that be well-pleasing to you. I do pray, Lord, that if anything now that I've said uh, in, in any way distracted from or was not faithful to your word, just remove it from our attention. Help us to not recall it. But what was faithful, let it sit with us. And Holy Spirit, now we pray that you'd apply your truth to us and that we'd, we'd sort of be nimble with you in listening to you as you convict us and move us and shape our lives. We surrender ourselves to you because you're good. You're good and we know it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.